everyone. It's Brendan again. I'm hopping on before the podcast this week because uh, we do record with Mr. Tarek Patel uh, today and dive deep into the Flesh and Blood metagame, preparation for the Pro Tour, uh, Bolton, literally all the good stuff. But Hayden and I recorded the intro after that, and in my infinite wisdom, I deleted said intro to make <laughs> to make room on my C drive because I'm one of those psychopaths that live with my my <laughs> my sort of key hard drive that makes my computer function at 98 to 99% capacity at any given time thus having to delete things frequently and uh yeah I deleted my part of the episode so here I am anyway I want to take the time to expand a little bit more uh, upon our story that we talked about last week, which was U.S. Nationals, the calling at U.S. Nationals in particular. But let's rewind it a bit. I did mention that, you know, in swapping to Tark Patel's Briar deck, I was swapping off of what I call a shit Briar deck. Well, how did, uh, why was I playing a shit Briar deck? How did I end up with a deck like that? Uh, I thought I, I thought you're supposed to bring good decks to tournaments. Well... We tested a lot for that tournament, U.S. Nationals in particular. Not really testing for the calling the day after, but that's how it goes. And <clears throat> Briar was clearly an extremely powerful deck. Um, you know, we were also looking at things like Viscerai, uh, you know, Runeblades back in the day, right? But with Briar, at least in our internal testing at the time, we had a bit of a dichotomy between Earth Briar, Tall Briar, and Lightning Briar, or the go-wide sort of zero-cost Cheerios Briar. The the Cheerios list that we were using was a little bit less tuned than it ended up being um, for the one that was taken to that U.S. Nationals tournament by Mr. Tarek Patel. But, uh, you know, functionally, we kind of found out that the, the lists were pretty similar in power level, and we felt like after we tuned our deck quite a bit, the, the Earth Briar list, it was... We felt like it was more powerful, to be honest. We thought our worst matchup was was Lightning Briar, um, by far. Uh, we felt very favored into everything else in the metagame. Like, okay, Lightning Briar is our worst matchup by far. It won't be that popular, right? Like, how popular could it be? I know Matthew Fox just went undefeated on stream at UK Nationals, but <laughs> how popular could it be? <coughs> yeah, really fucking popular. So, <laughs> but uh, that that's really not why we, en- we ended up on the bad deck. The bad deck story more comes from we had this briar list we had been tuning for months and lead up to the tournament. And then, <clears throat> you know, the night before the tournament or the day before the tournament, per se, um, I'm sitting at our Airbnb in Orlando, Florida, beautiful, sunny Orlando, Florida. And Mr. Zach Bunn, Mr. Tim Bunn, I think Ian came over. Uh, that, let's do some testing. Let's write down our deck list because you got to write down your deck list the night before the tournament. And yeah, me and Zach just start cooking. You know, we've got this Briar decklist, this tall Briar decklist, and it, it feels great. But, you know, maybe it could be optimized. And how do you optimize a flesh and blood decklist? With, with math. So I whip out the spreadsheet. We start doing the math on attack action, not attack action, split, where do we want to be, what, what's playable, what's not, can we run Tome of the Arc Knight? Like all this stuff, figuring out the ratios. <clears throat> so in doing that, in using math to figure out our ratios yeah we ended up kind of just putting bad bad cards in our deck um you know like a, the split wasn't optimal uh per se even though it looked more optimal on paper actually playing the deck it was significantly less powerful significantly more clunky and we just didn't have a lot of time to test that version of the deck we made a lot of edits I, it, honestly it wasn't even a lot but we had a few edits the night before and then there i am 
day one of U.S. Nats, and so is Zach Bunn, and we're playing this, what we used to think was a powerful Class Constructed deck, and it is terrible. And I remember going up to Zach Bunn after the Class Constructed rounds, and I was like, bro, <laughs> something is wrong. And he was like, yeah, I know. And yeah, we, we both had a pretty bad time in terms of Class Constructed at that tournament. I believe Hayden, yeah, Hayden was obviously not in the uh, U.S. Nationals, so he was able to sw switch before he went to the calling, so... That's that's the story of how we got on a bad Briar deck. Because honestly, the tall Briar deck, it's not a bad deck. I know it's long gone now, but we considered bringing it to PT Leal. So even even yeah, months and months later, before that, I had gotten very close to winning a battle hardened, going completely undefeated. What used to be a battle hardened, going completely undefeated, um, in like eight class constructed rounds, just losing in my semifinal, uh, to a chain. And yeah, the the list looked very promising, and I enjoyed playing that list a lot more. But uh, if any lesson is to be taken away from that, it's that don't make, like even just don't make last minute edits because theory can get you so far, but actually playing the deck um, is way more important than any theory. And even that, even in modern day flesh and blood, even in the value oriented uh, theory, you, you got to get reps. You got to play the deck because. Don't be like me. Don't be like me and Zach Bunn. Don't be sitting out down day one of U.S. Nats and Class Constructed and playing a deck that feels alien to you because it was it was a shock. But yeah, I learned my lesson, and then ultimately, the calling the next day, Tarek Patel gave us the deck list to Cheerios Briar, and we took that to pretty pretty incredible finishes across three people. So shout out to Tarek. Anyway, also want to mention, yeah, speaking of U.S. Nationals, speaking of the Briar deck, wouldn't have been possible without those ye yellow ravenous rabbles. So I want to shout out Magnolia Games for sponsoring this episode. Um, you can find them at magnoliagames.com. They've got everything you need, whether it's booster boxes to draft heavy hitters, singles to up update your class constructed deck, or cold foils, gold foils. They have the largest selection of gold foils, I think, in the world at this point. They're at every single event. Uh, you can find them there. Check them out. Uh, they're good friends of the podcast at this point. Like I said, they helped us out immensely at U.S. Nationals. Um, helped us get those incredible finishes. So check them out at magnoliagames.com and use code ARSENAL10 to let them know you came from the podcast. Anyway, let's get into the main topic. You're listening to Arsenal Pass. A flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy, leveling up and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. And this week we are joined by Mr. Tark Patel. Uh, you've been a guest of the pod many times at this point. I know, I think the last time we had you on, we were also talking about some macro meta stuff, and you had just mentioned that we actually spoke about Kano and what would happen if Kano was the best deck in the format. Um, whether or not that is true, we will <laughs> we'll get to the bottom of that. But before that, how is your testing going for Pro Tour Los Angeles, and have you been attending any Road to Nationals, or do you plan to uh, in lead up to that event? And my testing is going pretty good. So it started with the release of the new set, Heavy Hitters, which I've been enjoying quite a bit. I attended the calling down in Hartford a couple of weeks ago and actually managed to snag a top eight spot. The draft in top eight uh, ended up with three Guardians, and I didn't quite get there in the quarters. But overall, it was a really good experience, and I've learned a ton. Uh, I've kind of shifted my focus over to Class Constructor over the last couple of weeks. A uh, couple of life events have happened for me, so I've had to take some impromptu trips 
all around the USA, down to Florida, back up to Canada. Then most recently, I was in New Zealand uh, over the last week and a half or so. So that's been a really fun trip uh, for Matt Rogers' wedding, which was a, an awesome experience. Got to live the Kiwi lifestyle for almost a, a week and a half. Um, while I was down there, obviously, I didn't get to play much Flesh and Blood, given that we were doing a lot of wedding prep stuff. And just a lot of like touristy stuff in general. We got to see Hobbiton, the glow worms, mm-hmm. uh, everything like that, which was totally awesome. The lifestyle down there, you guys have a great haven. Yeah. <laughs> the, the weather, the, well, the area, the location. It's Yeah. Nice. A- apparently the weather is a bit of a bait because I thought the same thing, bro. I went there. I was like, Dude, this is heaven on earth. Like, I mean, it was nice when I was there. But then you talk to Hayden or any of the other guys and they're like, oh, it gets bad. Why? What's but- it like otherwise? It doesn't get you live like you you know you've lived in Toronto so it don't get that bad but um it it does get February is definitely the best month for weather in New Zealand it, it definitely gets a bit a bit gloomy sometimes um but no I mean the weather's nice I think you know you came in with your with your Canadian dollars so that probably worked out a bit better for you than some people using their New Zealand dollars down there the New Zealand dollary dues don't uh, necessarily go as, as far as they used to I would say that the cost of living in New Zealand can be quite high on that little island. Yeah, we also cleaned up at the casino, which made it uh, a fun little that trip because yeah. everything was on house money. We were just like, sure, we'll play for the upgrades. We'll have like this fancy steak dinner. Um, but no, back to Flesh and Blood. I played an RTN when I was down there, actually, because I wanted to play an event in the motherland. <laughs> and I actually lost the finals. And I think I was because I was jet lagging. I think I miscalculated a turn. And I lost the gold foil. And I swear, it was like the home turf against me. Like people were getting like text messages like, Oh, tell him to like that. I was like, what the hell is going on? But no, it was a really fun experience uh, playing in New Zealand, uh, the the birthplace of Flesh and Blood. It was a really, really cool experience for me. Yeah. Locked up your invite then. Yeah, I got, I got my invite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the word around the ca- the campfire, the water cooler back in the day was that those, ro- I mean, those road to nationals, those armies, those are like, those are like US or Canadian callings. I don't know if you've heard. Maybe in the level of Pro Tour at this point. That may be what the kids are calling fake news, but uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you know. Uh, what are your thoughts, um, sort of your your macro thoughts on the current classic constructed format? Do you think that it's in a healthy spot? Because it's being touted as one of the most diverse uh, metas of all time. And I know this is an opinion that you disagree with, but it's definitely an opinion that is held that diversity is synonymous with meta health. Yeah, and um, I think there's a very important distinction between open metas and what we call perceived open metas. And Brian Gottlieb actually made a really interesting tweet that I I really enjoy because I feel kind of the same way where he goes, I enjoy open metas because it gives you a lot of room for exploitation, where you're able to kind of hone in what's good and kind of focus the meta to the point that becomes less diverse than people actually think, okay? Now, I think 90% of the time through any TCG's histories, whenever people talk about open metas, what people are really talking about is a perceived open meta game where you know not enough stress has been placed on a tournament scene or there hasn't been incentive for people to really dive in and explore what the actual best deck is. Um, now, from a developer point of view, from LSS, LSS, LSS's point of view, uh, all they really care about is how long can we keep a perceived open metagame for in, in the eyes of the public. Because no matter what format, no matter how perfect, there's always going to be slight imbalances and one deck's always going to be slightly better than another. Another, So inevitably, like there will be a defined tier list metagame at some point. It's a matter of if, not when, 
uh, or when, not if that will happen. Um, so, but I think heavy hitters is in a great place right now. I know over, you know, a couple of weeks of testing, nothing has really jumped out at me as clearly, obviously the best deck, which has happened, you know, in the previous class constructed metagame. So from that point of view, I think they've done a really good job with heavy hitters and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, all of us preparing for pro tour LA. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. What, so the open, the open metagame sort of theory is that, um, open metagames are more more rife for exploitation. That is that is that this kind of open metagame, or is it? Because for me, when I've been approaching metagames, I've always found I think it's maybe partly due to the decks that I I try to play, but I prefer to approach a metagame that is perceived to be solved in terms of exploitation. I think that gives the most room for some for you to sort of be able to accurately predict a metagame um, and then take advantage of it. Not that the tools are always there; they're usually not, but for me, that's what I consider to be when I talk, when I think about exploiting a metagame, that's the scenario I think suits it best. Yeah. So classically, I, I tend to fall more into the category where I like when there's a fully established metagame, because mm -hmm. then you kind of know hierarchically, you know, most people show up with a, you can play B, but then there might be decks that you have to worry about. And that makes it easier in the preparation uh, stages. Um, where we are right now, you know, anybody can show from anywhere with Kano to Bolton to Leviah to Azalea and probably be okay and, and have a decent run in the tournament. As a player, yeah, it makes it a little bit more tough to prepare for, but I also think your potential yield for results is a lot more. Um, because if you find something that is just this much better than everything else, your likelihood of success becomes exponentially higher than if you were to just be in that classic ABC kind of tiered metagame. You know you're well positioned, but you still know that, you know, if you're playing A, that somebody playing B can still beat you. So you're kind of just rolling the dice in that way. So when it comes to preparing, yeah, like it would be nice to have everything nice and neat and laid out. But from a deck building and brewing point of view, I think we have, and I'm really happy with the group we're working with. I mean, you, you guys are involved in it this time. Uh, we're on almost every day, you know, working it out. Uh, I think we're going to arrive at something that's significantly better than what the field is playing. I think. I don't know. We're not there yet, but I think a lot of headway is being made. And I think that gives us as top tier players a lot of, a lot more chance for a good result than maybe an ABC structured metagame. Yeah. I want to put a pin in a question that I have um, for later, which is just sort of the advantages that larger testing groups have at this point, or at least sophisticated testing groups at the least in terms of um, just like the aggregation of data uh, that some of these re these tools that are being used are able to achieve at this point, because I think it's the <laughs> the gap is getting quite big at the, uh, you know as we progress forward. Uh, the, in regards to the metagame for the Pro Tour, do you think that the road to nationals results over the past couple of weeks are indicative of a pro tour metagame? Or do you think when attending a tournament like the pro tour in Los Angeles, that the margins are actually a lot thinner than the community currently perceives them to be? Um, well, I think the cream always rises to the top. I think we're still in the stages where people are still figuring out what's actually good. So there's going to be a lot more noise in the data and the sample sizes are obviously a lot smaller. So we're only getting a glimpse of what there is to be right if you looked have you ever seen the picture where it's like a black ball on one side and then a white ball on the other side in the middle it's kind of gray it's kind of like we're getting kind of glimpses of that ball at different spots and we don't really fully know what the big picture looks like yet i think the rtn kind of gives us 
a little bit of a diving board as to where we're kind of starting, what to kind of look at. Are our biases or perceived notions of the metagame confirmed, or is it different than what we expected? And if it's different, why is it different? For example, I think a lot of us were considering Kano. Why is Kano doing better? Okay, there's a lot less prevalence of aggro decks that tends to favor Kano. When a, a lot of decks want to block to attack for seven and really can't push through you know, large go wide turns, Kano tends to be a little bit better. Okay, should we be looking at something else? Or how do we as a mid-range deck focus and attack Kano? So these RTNs I think are, are a mix of people trying to figure out what's going on. People are playing what they're comfortable with. Kano players that have been playing it for a while are obviously finding a lot of success. But I think it's the metagame trying to work itself out on a local slash RTN level. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, anyway, we'll get more into that when we get into the main topic. I gotta, we gotta hit the news first, uh, which is, yeah, the Calling Tokyo in the world premiere. This this new Miss Vale set. I just want to get your thoughts on your at least your first impressions. Like, what sort of classes do you think might be represented there? I know Ninjas is like kind of the, I don't know. It's like the easy guess first. Uh, first off, maybe something like a Wizard as well. Um, but the main thing I want to talk about is sealed is eight packs, thirty cards exactly. Uh, what do you think that hints at? Uh, yeah, so I really do believe the pack sizes will change. So when the news first dropped, we were having dinner at the time in New Zealand, and I was talking to Nick and Matt and everybody else, and I said, you know, field is already pretty optimized to the point where, like, if there's a best deck um, and you already have 84 cards, you're going to make a pretty good pile. I can't imagine them giving us like 30 or 28 more cards and then saying hey build a sealed deck from this because it's going to be so homogenized everybody's deck is going to be exactly the same so to me that yells at you that there has to be a pack size change because there's no way they're going to give people an extra 30 cards to play sealed with unless maybe their logic is hey we want the weaker heroes to maybe have a couple more cards and maybe that will make the pools a little bit better but i don't think that's where they're going so i personally believe that the pack sizes will change now, to me, the most logical change would be a 12 to 13 pack size. And then for draft, we might be just drafting with an extra pack, which I think is phenomenal. It will fix a ton of the number of problems that Flesh and Blood draft has had for years at this point. Mm-hmm. Hayden, are you in that uh, sort of... Are you on that... I was going to say, I don't know. Do you have... Is that your thought as well? Do you agree with that? Um. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think it... I think the kind of idea of a, a differentiated pack size has been something that's been sort of floated before around the community. And I kind of agree with what Tarek's saying. Like there's some issues that I think a fourth pack would, would help address in terms of um, kind of where you can go in the draft, where you, how you can stay open or what lanes you can go into. You know, I think 14 card three packs is, is really narrow time frame for those, those first kind of, five picks in particular that's so much more impactful than the rest of the draft like significantly more impactful than the rest of the draft so um i think that could help that in terms of the kind of part the misfail itself and and what to expect i mean i don't know the the set we've seen a key out for the set you know mm-hmm. which looks kind of wizard-esque maybe you know it looks kind of like maybe something like icelander walking into the the sea but it could easily be you know more ninja related to be honest um so i don't know the set looks cool the world premiere is happening uh, May 17th in Japan. It's pretty exciting that we're going to Japan for a calling so soon. From what I'd heard, it was... It, it, from what I know, it's very tough to get spots in Japanese convention centers oh, yeah. to run events. So I'm surprised that 
that this happened so soon from what I'd heard, but it's very exciting, I think, for that market in particular. So, I mean, I'd love to go to this. I don't know if either of you two are thinking about trying to get there. Um, calling, so World Premiere on Friday the 17th. Calling is still part, part of the Miss Vale Steel, so very similar to what we saw with the Calling in Queenstown. Um, but yeah, I, I'd love to go, but I think it's going to be hard to get there. How about you two? Eric? I just checked that apparently I have a direct flight from Toronto. Uh, one of my goals on this bucket list of mine this year was to go to as many callings as possible. So I was actually trying to go to the Phuket uh, one in a mm -hmm. couple of weeks after the Pro Tour and then Warsaw uh, in Poland. So I'm going to try my best to be there, but no promises. Yeah. I go feel... to Tokyo over Phuket, surely. I don't know. Phuket is pretty sick, bro. I mean, <laughs> I spent a lot of time. Uh, I used to kind of like live Good. in Thailand. I went back and forth for years. But yeah, part of that was living in Phuket as well. It's a nice area. Anyway, we've all, I think the Flesh and Blood community as a whole, uh, it might be, you know, a small sample size than just the people that I associate with, but I feel like, uh, associate with, I feel like the Flesh and Blood community has been waiting for an excuse to go to Tokyo, to do, the, to do the Japan trip. This is like, if you ever ask anybody, like, where is the place you want to have the next pro tour or the next big world championship? Everybody's pipe dream is, is Japan or Tokyo at that. So mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I've always wanted to go there, but it's just a question of can we justify it for just a world premiere and a calling? Because a pro tour would be a lot easier, I think. But for a world premiere and a calling, um, it is definitely a big question. I also think that if you go to Japan and you've never been, I do think you have to take an extended period of time, right? You've got to 100%. take, yeah, one hundred percent. You've got to you've travel got to. around that country. It's, it's that, and it's what I would do. It's a lot of flying. I was gonna say, hey, I don't know how you do these these trips on the regular to North America and Europe. Yeah. Holy smokes! I thought I was gonna die on that that plane ride over from New Zealand. <laughs> Bro, it sucks. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But the the thing with the Tokyo, the piece of it is, I like actually from here, it's a I can also do a direct flight. It's like nine to nine hours or so, which I would love to do. But again, this is something that's been. I I thought Alice's were getting better at this, but ten weeks notice is not enough to plan a holiday and i would want to take a holiday if i was going to japan because my favorite country in the world love japan loved my time i've spent there previously i have wanted to go back since COVID, um but it's you know 10 weeks is hard time to to get leave plan a trip and and make it over there so i don't know yeah um i feel you though Tarek. i feel like in regards to the flying like the international flying at this point, I feel like I physically age while I'm on those airplanes. Like it is, it is a freaking beatdown, and it's definitely taxing over a long period of time. It drastically changes if you're able to fly business and lay down versus sit in the middle seat of some, I don't know, sardine-packed uh, airplane in the back. But yeah, uh, I'm trying to limit my tra my 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 travel at this point, but just trying to hit the pro tours, LA. We'll see about Amsterdam, and then who knows what the world championship is going to be. But I'm excited for it. Looks like a cool set. Um, I'm happy they're finally breaking in Japan. We've talked, we've been talking about it for years. I remember talking uh, to Chris Pierce about it at a dinner in Baltimore, and he outlined some of the the challenges that they face trying to break into that market. And there is a huge logistical sort of there's a huge amount of logistical hurdles that they need to get through. And he actually, when I talked to him, he was not super optimistic about something happening very soon. So I think that they um, they were able to sort of crush it. So it's very exciting flesh and blood in japan finally and uh, hopefully you know finally we're going to get those japanese flesh and blood cards those localized cards that we can all put into our deck um i'm excited for it. yeah in, in regards to the set my guess would be uh ninja 
illusionist. I don't know about wizard. I've just, maybe this is like insider information, but I've heard, I've kind of heard like musings about like the next like wizard thing is like actually a wizard set. Uh, the validity of that, who knows, but it, it sounds like it's like a wizard centered set from what I've heard, which I don't, I have no idea if it's true or not. And this, this is probably not that I'll say. Uh, I'm keen to see what the mechanics are, especially for limited. I think that Flesh and Blood is, um, their limited mechanics at the beginning a lot better. Like Bright Lights to Heavy Hitters was a, a drastic upgrade. And the Clash mechanic, um, the Wager mechanic, those are just really fun, fun mechanics in card games. And I think they've learned a lot in terms of TCG design. Um, anyway, on to our Command and Cookout section, which is our listener question section for the week. If you want to get your question read out on next week's episode, you can shoot us a comment on YouTube. The first one is from The Sand Trap. They say, in quotation, this is a KO-dominated metagame. I hear this from not only you guys, but other fab personalities as well. As well. But what data are you actually getting this presumption from? I went to one R RTN and topped very, very few KO. And, not, and none topped. Ryan R went 6-0, though. There you go, Aiden. It's like you guys were hyped on KO, saw Yuki win on KO, maybe played some games and came out thinking KO is really strong, and thus it's a KO meta. Even though it's not even topping some events in uh, in most recent major events, most represented decks only taking up ten to fifteen percent of actual representation. What gives? So yeah, we talked about this a little bit in like the preamble of this episode, but uh, yeah, the KO stuff for us is like anecdotal testing evidence. Like every every aspect of my testing is dictated by KO at this point. Like it is the litmus test of all our decks. It's the the main deck that we're um we're looking at at this point and yeah it just seems very very powerful and extremely consistent it's a it's a fair question we did talk about ko and i know we, we did talk through the lens of our testing um it's funny this question because it says what data we're we looking at and then throws in their own anecdotal evidence <laughs> in there as well for the opposite which hey fair enough uh but also if you look across the first two weeks of road to nationals uh ko is tied first for most road to nationals wins so um there, there is some data behind ko being one of the best decks in the format but also i think i agree with brendan from just a a pure return on the power of the hero and what it's doing i think ko is one of the decks to beat which we can talk a little bit more about. But I think if it's not in your kind of gauntlet then and high up in your gauntlet in terms of where you're testing, then you're probably doing something wrong, I would say. Exactly what Hayden said. I mean, it's one, I guess, tied the most RTN wins already. And then it's also the antithesis of what Bolton is as a deck. You know, for <laughs> I understand when I look at a KO list, I'm like, I get why you win. Mathematically, theoretically, like this is a solid deck on paper. When I look at Bolton, it's like, I don't get it, but there are people that really like it. I know Roger Bodie's probably going to message me some death threats later, yeah. but uh, that's okay. It's, like, it's one of those decks that I just I don't get. I, I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. You like, like the card disadvantage hero. Okay. <laughs> I just like, I don't know. Uh, it's like, yes, that, that, that deck can veer off of its standard deviation of games and win. Like, that's flesh and blood, but I just... I think the deck is more real than it has been in the past, but there are just yeah. like people are visceral about about Bolton for some reason, and I just don't think the the value proposition on Bolton is not very good. That doesn't mean we we immediately dismiss it as a playable deck for the Pro Tour, but it I don't know. It's not dictating a lot of our testing. We play against it. We've tested it, and it it just 
it doesn't look fantastic, but uh, I, I don't know. At this point, I'm just like, am I freaking missing something? Or do people just like to, you know, like the card disadvantage hero? It, 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 I will say it's the most playable it's ever been since I've started playing the game. Like, I'm not going to argue with that. But I also don't have the great, wonderful experience that other Bolton players have been having. It's been okay. It's felt average, but it hasn't been like this wow, amazing thing like a lot of the Bolton players are, are hyping it up to be. That's all I'll but, say. But, Tark, you know when you, you show up in your, your car and you're driving to work and you're, you're, on the, you're on the freeway or the motorway and you're, you're going like, 50 and everyone else is going like 60 or 70 you know and they're just like going past you and then one day you go and get a service and they're like hey we've got this we've got this new part we can put on your old car and it tunes it up and now you start going down the freeway at like 55, 55. and you're like wow i'm 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 faster than i was before like i'm, I'm keeping up with some of these cars that's bolton ah uh, yeah i mean i'll, I'll happily eat, eat my words on bolton if it has a great performance in the pro tour um, but i will say Anecdotally, right now, it is just not performed ex exceptionally well in testing. And I understand that there is data out there, whether it's Chris Gary tweeting on his little Twitter, uh, or it's somebody winning with Bolton. Like, there is data out there that, 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 that the deck is playable and that it can win games. Um, just for us, so far, it hasn't been a standout. Anyway, next one is... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Next one is from Obi Wood Landjay. Oh, God. I'm... After Hayden put out that, like, he was like, oh, one day somebody's going to get us with the name. I'm terrified because you're just baiting all of them at this point. They say, damn, I really wanted to hear you both gush over Kano. Okay, so Tarek, to give you some context, basically, we recorded an episode talking about, like, anecdotal road to national uh, data because they hadn't released the data yet. Um, and we kind of we dunked on Kano a little bit. We're like, yeah, I don't want to play it. It doesn't, you know, week week two, week three, Kano, when it's expected, who wants to play that? And then immediately after we upload the episode, they released the data and Kano was the most winning deck. So we did not gush over it. But I kind of main, I mean, it didn't change my opinion on the hero. I was surprised. I think it's impressive, but it didn't change my opinion on the hero. And I don't feel like I want to play the deck anymore. Like playing Kano into a field that is actively, has a, better reason than they've ever had to hate it out because Kano has still been hated out of formats and people still pack sidebar cards that they statistically should never have um in their sideboard at you know in previous tournaments but now there's like a legitimate reason because it's it's the talk of the town and yeah it's just I don't think I'd want to play Kano in that sort of metagame but our meme is is that yeah we talked about it. we're locked on something that starts with K and ends with O so who knows who knows? Kano's good. Kano's like Kano. Kano's power level is as high as it's ever been, but everything around it has come down a little bit. And there's a lot of decks that want to trade two to four card hands, right? Like play two cards, mm -hmm. block two cards, whatever. And that that is that is really good for Kano. Like it is, it's an exploitable thing for Kano. So, like I, I played a couple of games with different decks into Kano. I'm like, well, oh, this this feels scary. Like I've played a lot of Kano, and I have played from the other side as well, but. Because of I think the the decks that are rising to the top in this format, like they they do feel like whether they're good or bad matchups, whatever, it feels scary regardless. Like it does feel scary. So I have kind of shifted a little bit. I I'm not to say I'm super high on Kano. I think there's basically zero percent chance I register Kano at the PT. Maybe not. There's never zero percent chance I register Kano. But like it's <laughs> it's as low as it's probably been. And I think that's because I'm not a big fan of playing Kano into formats where 
it's expected. I just think this is like, it's so different to every other flesh and blood deck in the way that you can actually prepare for it with a few or a number of cards as opposed to a total game plan, which you have to do for almost any other deck in flesh and blood. Any other top deck that's ever been has required you to adapt a list, adapt a game plan, have a very robust kind of way you play into it. And that is actually just not the same with Kano. And I don't think really any other deck is like that. It's kind of more like a magic deck than than anything else in, in Fab, I think, in terms of how you can interact with it. So... That, that's kind of how I see it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Tarek? Wait, give us your rundown on Kano. I, I, I couldn't have said it any better myself, actually. I, I agree with everything you said. I think Kano is a deck that does well when people don't expect it. And I think now that it's on the radar, it makes it exponentially harder for players to get away with it. Because even if you're a deck with a classically bad matchup, you know, even Bravo players can just go AB3 and maybe put two to three uh oasis for spites or you know people can do really weird or crazy stuff to beat it so i think the fact that kano did well at the rtns are its own worst enemy and people are going to come prepared for it for the pro tour where uh i know when you guys had a lot of success for it in pt1 uh now correct me if i'm wrong but a large part of that was because nobody was expecting it like you faced little to no ab right and you got a significant uh edge in that metagame so it's quite the contrast that we have here from from before. Yeah, it's and the same at Worlds as well. Yeah, Hayden, like Worlds, Hayden I think there was four Kano players. Yeah, Hayden played at the Worlds at Worlds as well, and um, honestly, like it, its worst matchup in that in that, in that game was probably Icelander. And we Icelander was I don't know if it was more representative than we expected, but it rose to the top a lot more than we expected, um, which was not great. But yeah, ultimately people were unprepared for Kano in that, in that meta game, and. Um, it, it performed well and i thought it was a, a good deck for that format but yeah right now i would say there's there's not zero percent chance but the the more popular it is the, i think the less likely i am to bring it to something like like a pro tour because people there's definitely a misconception that if, if a deck is unprepared for kano it loses because that's just not the case at all that's true, yeah. there, there's 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 two there's two dimensions that you can try to be kano on you can try to respect the deck you can try to add sideboard cards into your deck you can try to play oasis despite you can try to add additional ab or you can just not give a fuck and you're probably equally likely to win to an extent because kano is a deck that relies on one sort of a few sequence of cards to extend past its like normal curve which is terrible it's normal damage curve or turn cycle output is terrible and you have to be doing the aether wildfire thing at least 90 percent of the time if you're going to win and a lot of these decks they can just race you and i mean there is an inherent level of variance there where you can just lose to decks that absolutely are disrespecting you and, and they don't care about adding cyborg cards they don't care about adding additional ab it just sucks that there's that inherent fail rate even if even in the best meta conditions there are there is that inherent fail rate then there's gem after that. There's the gem format. There's the non-meta decks that you could face that they can absolutely destroy you. And I think that for all those reasons, Kano is maybe not super high on the list. But Tarek, I will say, I saw you attend the Magic tournament. I saw what deck you were playing. I was like, dude, why does this guy not play K Kano? He was playing Amulet Titan. I was like, because <laughs> every time I talked to... Okay, so I, I say every time. But last time I talked to Tarek about Kano, he we were talking about the math. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? You just do 38. And you're like, what? It, I don't know. Have you have you been repping? Have you gotten the reps on a deck? Do you feel like you are yes. fully competent on it at this point? I've said this multiple times. You and Hayden have both baited me into playing that deck multiple <laughs> times through multiple formats, and every time it's the same shit in a different toilet. I kid you not. It's <laughs> fine. It's it's a deck that does its thing. Kano has gotten like zero new cards in this set. It's the same deck. All that's changed are the decks around it. It's mm -hmm. it's 
it's the game, the decks it's playing against. So, I mean, it's still a solid deck. I'm fully aware of what it can do. Uh, I just don't think. I mean, I don't know. I think Hayden said it perfectly. I agree with everything he said. I think if you're prepared for it and the metagame falls in a very slightly more aggressive phase, Kano will have a hard time. And I think that's kind of where this metagame's trended. Kano's on everybody's radar. We're talking about it now. And the metagame, you know, people love K- uh, KO. These KAO heroes are going to be the death of me. <laughs> uh, but I will say, there's also this discourse that's happening on Twitter right now where people are complaining about Kano. Um and I just want to go on record because we've actually talked about it on this very podcast multiple times that I think if K no ever did become the tier zero de facto metagame, that would be a problem. I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Kano's broken and needs to be banned, blah, 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 blah. I'm saying in a hypothetical world, if they print Aether Wildfire V2 and the deck gets absolutely pushed over the top, that would be the most miserable experience for everyone. I just wanted to throw that in there, but uh, I digress. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. The, the other thing as well, I just want to do point out, because I want to give an other side to it as well. You did say, you know, we talked about kind of, um, Brendan talks about it, you know, just don't care about the deck, right? Just kill them. Like that is a thing that we've seen previously. Maybe the meta's not quite there. You can also pack your hate, right, for uh, Kano. I almost did it as well, for Kano. And that doesn't that doesn't also guarantee that you're going to win, right? It's yeah. not like, oh, you pack the hate. But what it does do is it just reduces the amount of games that you just just win like from the Kano side and vice versa from the other side it just increases the spots we go oh actually you had to play into the spot and I have the answer to it and it just just the win rate comes down the last thing I want to say is I think Tarek Patel has registered Kano for more events than I have which is hilarious because I've only played it twice <laughs> yeah well that's the thing is I get I get so much shit for talking down Bravo and I've registered it in more events probably 3x events of Hayden <laughs> I'm I'm the Bravo truther <laughs> People don't understand. Anyway, um, I kind of bring something up. Before we get into the data, what are your thoughts on Bravo versus Victor, Tar? Uh, I know Jacuzzer's probably going to yell at me, but I actually do think it's like heavily Bravo favored. But I don't know. People are telling me it's the opposite. So what do I know? Yeah. Another classic 90-90 matchup. There's <laughs> quite a dichotomy there. What do you think about the just the hero power level in general against the, the broad field? Um, I know metagame context, like a heavily brute dominated metagame. Bravo might be better positioned, but in terms of like fundamental power level of the heroes, do you think that Bravo is on par with with Victor? Yes, um, I think with the recent set printing since Fab 2.0, the power level of every hero has dropped significantly. Mm-hmm. Right, there's no more chains, there's no more OG prison, there's no more Briar. So you're seeing a lot of these classic. You know heroes in class constructed seeing a resurgence and i think bravo's power level is right on par with every 2.0 hero i think most of his hero power is being able to play crippling crush and starstruck and a full fridge um where i don't think victor's ability is fantastic as of yet I, i'm still to be proven wrong or i'm still willing to be proven wrong um we had a discussion in our team chat earlier today about the card trounce i believe mm-hmm. it is the majestic block where I'm not convinced that it is a great Bravo card because its fail rate is very close to 50% with the way current Victor, or yeah, Victor, I don't know if I said Bravo, but its current fail rate is around 50% in the way current Victor decks are built. Uh, with the amount of non-attack actions you're playing, you have to win both clashes to win, to make a gold token and draw the card to get the advantage. Um, so just with the amount of non-attack actions being close to 15 that you're playing in the deck, you're about a coin flip to lose at least one or tie at at least one. 
Um, and then the Tesla strength, obviously, is a good car. But mm-hmm. past that, it struggles a lot in second cycle. I've had multiple games now where I've gone through first and second cycles against Warrior, let's say, and they've blocked out, they've traded, and I've been ahead 10 life. And then all I can do past that is attack with two cards, block with two cards. Especially once you run out of reds, it, it gets really rough. So in my opinion, I'm still a Bravo truther, a little bit more than I am Victor. But uh, I think more testing is required in that field. Yeah. I think I went pretty deep down the rabbit hole with Jacuzzi, and I'm, I'm definitely a Victor truther at this point, but I do think that in this metagame, Bravo might come out more on top. I think the Victor is an absolute chat of a hero, though, especially metagame. <laughs> when the metagame context shifts, and I think that Victor's hero ability is activated more consistently, at least two to three times a game, um, I just think it's going to be one of the better heroes. Anyway, let's Surely that's the meta for this, though. Is it? Surely that's the meta for that, though. Like, when was the last time we had... I don't know, maybe because there's less aggressive decks and Kano's a thing. Yeah, all right. I, I, never mind. I'll talk about that another time. All right. Let's, uh, let's hop in. Oh, one more question before we hop into data. You talked about the powering down of Flesh and Blood Classic Constructed, the, the format. We had Brian Gottlieb. You know, he talked about that being intentional. Um, I also want to ask, in terms of you as a player and enjoyability with the Classic Constructed format, do you find the, the previous iterations of Classic Constructed more enjoyable or this new iteration where the power level is a bit lower? I think that's a very nuanced question. Um, as a player, I kind of... Flash of 2.0 is a little bit more data mining. So it feels like I'm almost like preparing for a chess tournament, this one. You know, even our group chat, I'm sure you've seen me asking for people's data, Talishar data, Talishar games. I need, you know, what average block values of everybody's deck is. Uh, you guys will see it in a couple of days, but I've I've completely mined the limited format, and I'll post that up in our in our chat. But it it seems like there's a lot of finessing very very tiny edges, and then coming to a conclusion that is you know this deck is marginally better in these aspects than this deck. Maybe we should consider it. Um, from like a purely you know uh, what's the term they use? Uh, not Johnny. What's the spike? Like from a purely spike point of view. It's enticing to some degree because there are edges to flush out that maybe other people won't get to. And that part is interesting. I, from a game perspective, and this is echoed in a lot of the casual or less competitive players that I've talked to and known locally, um, they tended to prefer Flesh and Blood 1.0. Even though it's perceived to be a design mistake, I think, by LSS, uh, especially with the walkbat of 2.0 from where it was, uh, because people just like doing powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, we really see that when people were very upset that their Prism or Chain deck got banned and they can no longer, you know, do the fun stuff. Because let's be honest, you know, playing five cards in a turn, even though it's kind of degenerate, is a lot of fun. Or Soul Shackling for seven or playing two auras. People like that sensation in a game. I don't really know what the human aspect to it is. But they, they really like that, right? There's it's a reason why magic is way more popular than than chess, right? Yeah. We we talk about magic and not chess. Yeah. Um I was like I had had this conversation previously in regards to like magic design and prison cards and cards that let you don't play their cards. And I think that like most tenets of game design would have you design that out of the game. But people actually enjoy it. People enjoy that aspect um of magic and they enjoy it in other games, whether it's you know, soul shackling away, you know, half your deck. Um, you know, landing multiple auras and locking your opponent out of action points. Like people do enjoy it. The reason I asked you about enjoyability is because whether it's true or not, I do think a lot of people see you as the Briar guy. You're a lot more than that, but you are the you are the guy that broke that hero and took it to sort of its original fame. 
Excuse me, I'm the knickknack guy, but uh, yeah. No yeah, yeah, I was about to say, come <laughs> on, guys. <laughs> oh Rick my god, you actually caught me off guard. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you know, we actually tested that card quite a bit. Uh, after you posted on CFB because it wasn't, I mean, it's a tutor, so it's not unreasonable. Um, we're actually playing in Kano and stuff, but uh, yeah. Anyway, let's get into the data. Uh, this is week one, uh, Road to Nationals data, class constructed wins. So I'm just going to name the, the the top three. Why don't you just go to combined? Just go to the combined data. All right, we have Kids combined data that's been aggregated. All right, combined By data. Someone who puts a lot of effort in, Brendan's worth saying, you know. All right, uh, three uh, three way tie for first. Uh, Kano, Victor, Ko, Ko. Um, then Germ- those are all at seventeen wins. Jermai at fourteen wins. Bravo at thirteen wins. Dash at eleven wins. Bolton at ten. Kasai at ten. And then like a myriad of heroes, uh, sort of littering the rest of that uh, that list. What are your thoughts on this this like this three way t- tie started off with Kano, Victor, Ko? Do you think that those are is that are those the pillars of the metagame? Um, as of now, I think, yes, uh, Kano will always be there kind of in the background. It's been in my mind ever since, you know, I started playing this game because I never wanted to lose to that deck. I do think there's going to be some flavor of Guardian, uh, some flavor of Brute, and then you have to go down that list to see the Warrior, but I think Warrior is also there. There's Kasai with 10 wins, mm-hmm. uh, Bolton also with 10 wins, so combined 20 wins for Warrior. So I think Guardian, Brute, warrior with a sprinkle of dromai and kano is likely going to be the metagame we're going to see going forward interesting do you, do you think this is interesting to look at this from a class standpoint is this so are these heroes and within classes and because there is more heroes within class now pretty close to each other you think it's worth looking at a class that's something i've been thinking about the last few days so if we look from a, a class standpoint Brutes are leading the way currently with 33 wins out of 165 in the Roots Nationals uh, data. Guardians are at 30, closely behind. And then Warriors are not far behind that at 27. Now, these have some of the most heroes, right? They've got three three heroes, three Warrior even more now, right? Four heroes. But then you look after that, and it's like Illusionist at, at 20, Wizard at 17. Obviously, that's just one Wizard now. But I think when you look at the setup from a class level, because of when we looked previously, I think, you know, if I said Wizard, right? Kano, Icelander, two very different decks. Whereas I go Victor, Bravo, two fairly similar decks comparative to what decks within class have been last time. Even Ryan Arkeo, like fairly, fairly similar, for instance. Even even put Leviathan in there as well. So I do wonder if starting to look at a, a class level is, is uh, quite interesting as well. Yeah, and that's a fantastic question. And one thing that I would, the only criticism I would have for this game design in general is is this right here, this very topic. Because if a class is good, right, Reinar versus Ko, all their cards are functionally shared between them. So if one hero ability is mathematically slightly better than the mm-hmm. other, it should almost always be optimal to play one versus the other. And this is where we go back to, all the way to the start of this podcast, where we talked about a perceived open metagame. I think the fact that there's, multiple heroes in the same class taking up pretty equivalent shares of win percentages or metagame percentages shows that it is still perceived open, right? People don't know if Bravo's better than 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 Victor or KO's better than Reiner or whatever, Kasai's better than Bolton. But once we figure out, okay, this is definitively better than than that, people will stop playing one of those other classes because you should always just be doing this for XYZ edge over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk. This kind of this reminds me of the point you talked about earlier, where you were aggregating that Talashar data and looking at the 
sort of turn cycle value that the deck was the deck was getting. Um, like, do you think that that's to what extent is that the end all be all of the deck that you should be choosing? Is it just the sort of mathematical output that you can have on a turn cycle and exceeding sort of these um, the average of other decks, or are there additional things to factor in, like the nuance of game plans, like things like fatigue, etc.? Um, there is some nuance to it, but in general, Flesh and Blood is a game of math. So you win a turn cycle, you know, you win the turn. You you win enough turn cycles, you win the game. And, and that's basically what this game comes down to. Now, there are virtual advantages, is what I like to call, that don't always show up in the math, right? On hits that make agility tokens, mm -hmm. on hit cross effects like Bravo. So if you look at a Bravo turn cycle, it will always be slightly less than a pure aggro deck. But its represented value is in forcing your opponent to block with a certain number of cards. So it reduces their damage output, right? Because if your opponent has to give you two cards a turn cycle to prevent a crush effect, obviously their average turn output is going to be a lot less. So when you start making it contextual, it starts getting a little bit deeper. And then this is where the discussion part comes in and becomes more of an art than a science. But I think looking at general data and numbers is a very good place to start. Right, we go all the way back to U.S. Nationals 2022 when Michael Hamilton won with Wounded Bull. This is exactly what he did with Icelander and, and Wounded Bull. Was he said, you know, hey, you know, eight damage a turn plus block six is a 14 damage turn cycle repetitively. If I do this over the course of the game, I'm going to get a slight edge plus my extra turn cycle with Storm Striders is enough to to completely be you know overwhelming. And he was right. And you know, this lesson has stayed with us. You know, even yeah. from before that time till till now, it still holds true. And as we move to Fab 2.0 and cards become less flowery, less, you know, flourishing, you know, less soul shackle and a bunch of, you know, weird effects that play to the board in weird ways, then it becomes more obvious that we really have to dig down into the actual nitty gritty of the math of every turn cycle. I, I think it's worth noting that when we spoke to Brian and, and something that I know James has kind of echoed as well and some of his his statements it's not guaranteed that we're not going back to a more powerful flesh and blood especially in class constructed like i i think that we're in a, a lower point now but that that's not a guaranteed hold and that's been i think made reasonably clear the other thing i want to ask about so you talked about kind of value and then there's there's a there's a, there's a little deck sitting at number four here in the uh, in the charts called dromai and dromai can operate a little bit differently to that like it's not necessarily you know it has boarded uh, board advantage it, it operates on a more permanent basis where does Dromo plant this? Because, you know, you flash back to week one of, of uh, Road to Nationals and you look at the Battle Hardens and the PTI events that were held at some of these Battle Hardens and then also uh, the the callings, right? It's like, uh, Dromo's gone. Dromo has completely dropped off the face of the planet, but actually it's set here as 14 wins in Road to National season, only behind kind of these three pillars that we're talking about. Where does Dromo fit into all that? Yeah, Dromo is a very interesting class because it breaks the classic dynamics of how Flesh and Blood is being played. If you want the in a nutshell version, all Dromai Dragons are terrible math if they only are played for one turn. Mm -hmm. If they're played and immediately popped, it's like two cards for three, right? Because you're getting mm -hmm. only one card from your opponent. If they stick around, it is the best math in the game. So Dromai is very, very matchup dependent. It is probably the most polarized deck in the entire metagame. If you play a deck against a lot of decks with not a lot of poppers, you will have the easiest tournament in your life and vice versa. If you play against only decks with a lot of poppers and a lot of aggressive potential, it becomes very hard to win. But Droma, in my opinion, is like really cool design space as long as other heroes have abilities to kind of counteract and also play to the board in weird 
in interesting ways because like i said it's hard to you can't data farm dromai because there's so much context to it and i think that's what makes an interesting hero in an interesting game mm. yeah. agree <laughs> yeah interesting lead the witness on that one but you know my uh my thought my thought has kind of been that you actually can quantify dromai you just have to quantify it sort of based off floors and ceilings and you need to find sort of the average between the two based off the expected metagame and then you can kind of quantify your drum deck and put its value its turn cycle value up against other decks and then go from there um like you're right in a metagame where you're constantly being popped and it's dominated by brutes and guardians um your average turn cycle value should be quite low but in a metagame that is not that i, I do think that you can just you can do the math to an extent i don't think that talishaw does the math and it's not as clear but i do think that you can assign values to those dragons although they are somewhat arbitrary right because who knows if it's sticking around for one turn or two turns mm -hmm. i do think it is it's still it still exists in the paradigm that is value oriented flesh and blood and you talked about the lesson that michael Hamil hamilton taught us and yeah it, it's it's interesting because it is a lesson that has dictated pretty much all of modern flesh and blood thought since since it happened and i actually wonder that you know, wonder if it it preceded that event as well, as if it always existed as the way to win games of flesh and blood was to simply outvalue your opponent. And I do think that as we progress forward and the power does start to come down a bit, that they, the additional nuance um, that you could attach to a game, you'd be like, what about this situation? It, 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 it is outside the value, the value matrix. I think they become less and less. I think the value matrix becomes more and more important and more and more true. Um, I don't think it's the end all be all, but I do think that it should be the first layer of thought when evaluating anything in Flesh and Blood at this point. I, I really like these heroes that can kind of break away from that because I think they throw a spanner into the works of trying to understand matchups and and understand a metagame to a, a really, really deep layer. And I, I think, I don't completely disagree with you, Brendan. Like, I think you can look at Dromai from some value-related aspects, but there's so many instances where it's so hard to, like, yeah. go and tell me the value of a dragon if a Mirage is on the board. Go and tell me the value of a dragon if you get to do a Chroma Mirage turn. Go and tell me the value if you're able to play a Rake the Embers. Like, what, what actually, what is the value of Rake the Embers, right? That is such a, a difficult card to evaluate, yeah. I think. But in saying that, I do I do agree with you that for the most part. But I think if that happens, honestly, I don't I don't think that's good for the game. So I think decks like Dromai, I think decks like Azalea, I think these are these are good things to have in the metagame. I would like to see another of those. You know, I mean, Kano can be one of those to a degree, although it's a bit more linear in terms of what it's trying to do through a, a particular game. Um, but I don't know. Why isn't Max in there? Let's get Max in there, guys. Come on. I think you're right, though, Hayden. Um, I do think that I think that every access of Flesh and Blood could be theoretically. 100% solved uh, via some mm. sort of value calculation. But I do think that to the extent in which it cannot be done perfectly by the human brain, especially on demand, actually contributes to the level of nuance and the idea of agency we get during a game. So I think like decks like Dromai are much more fun and interactive where they kind of break that paradigm, mostly because the math, it's just not as clear, right? It's not as simple as playing a Guardian deck and blocking with two cards and maybe coming back for eight or something like the Icelander deck. It is just more nuanced and more contextual based off the board state. And while I don't think that that means it is not rooted in the value, the sort of the value concept of Flesh and Blood, I think it is just much harder to sort of on the fly do the math as a person. Um, and I think that's mm -hmm. what makes those decks very fun. Should we talk about some of these other decks? I mean, you know, we've kind of talked about those, the the three, the quote-unquote big three through the first two weeks. Kano, Victor, Kao, we talked a little bit about Dromai. Um, what, let's go down to the next of those uh, non-warrior, brute, guardians. About Dash, because you, you're someone, Tarek, who's played a lot of Dash. Um, <clears throat> you, you played Dash at Worlds, right? 
Rolf and P.T. Lil. I've registered yeah, yeah. for two Pro Tours now. Where, where's Dash at? Like, to me, I, I, so I, whenever I play Dash, I feel like it's so powerful. But for some reason, during the testing, it just never really eventuates to where I want it to be. It never feels like a deck that I want to end up on. You've done it twice. Where, where, where's Dash? Also, chances you play Dash at this PT. You know what's funny is after Lil, I said to myself, I'm never going to play Dash again. I'm always just going to pick a super powerful hero and just do it. And then there I was for Worlds and was like, hmm, <laughs> like a really good Dash metagame. And to be I fair, wish I played Dash. I think it was a perfect metagame for Dash. Bravo and Icelander were the two most represented decks. Uh, Dromoy was pretty lowly represented for what it could have been. Uh, I thought we we had the perfect deck. But uh, Dash does suffer from the boost problem, right? Um, when it draws all of its power cards, and, and one of our teammates, uh, one of the guys we, we prepped with for Worlds, Matt W, actually did end up top uh with Dash. So it, And Alan, I believe, did Alan top it or he came ninth? Um, it was close. Yeah. Yeah. So the the deck's good. The problem is, is that sometimes if you're playing the boost version, you boost the cards you want to be playing and you play the cards you want to be boosting or pitching. And you can't control when that happens. I had day two was nightmarish for me in classic constructed. I think I went uh 03 or 04 in classic constructed day two, and I think I hit like all good matchups. Like I hit like a Bravo, uh Azalea, um I think I lost to another Bravo or something like that. And I just, everything that could go wrong went wrong. And that's just the deck. Uh, sometimes it suffers from inherent inconsistency. Um, it's still a very solid choice. Like if anybody took Dash to PTLA, I wouldn't fault them. The math is right up there with KO and, you know, yeah, KO and Reinar and Victor and, and Bravo. So, you know, if somebody showed up with Dash, I wouldn't fault them at all. But um, I think when new sets come out, the developers want us to kind of explore the new mechanics. There's more incentive. There's more card pool, right? If I were to play Dash, it would look very similar to what I played at World with almost no new inclusion. So very little incentive to, for me to really work on Dash. The only way I would kind of go back to it is if I thought nothing else was really good enough. Hmm. Yeah. Dash. Yeah, Dash is... It's a super interesting deck, and it's it's I don't know. It's eye opening to hear you talk about that variant as someone who registered it at the Pro Tour because I watched it unfold on camera when I commentated Matt W's game. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it went pretty rough. So yeah. yeah, is there is there is there a good enough reason to to play a deck that has the that sort of variance um, inherent in just its general game plan? Why not just play something like a Ko or like a Victor? I think if you want to run hot, Dash or even Dashio is the one to play. Like when that deck high rolls, there's no deck that can compete, right? You look at Maximum Velocity, you look at Toma Findo, you look at uh, Sparky Genius, uh, High Octane. You know, these are cards that they're just so far and away better. But it does come with an inherent flaw of being easily fatigable if you're boosting. And it comes with the flaw of sometimes you boost away your really powerful cards. Uh, I, I had a ton of fun with Dashio. The minute Worlds was over, mm -hmm. we played the Realm Games Invitational like a week or two later, and I registered Dashio for that event. Now, I, I bubbled, uh, you know, the 10K or whatever it was, um, but the deck was probably the most fun I've ever had playing Flesh and Blood. Like, I think there's a million decisions a turn, and with the way it operates, like, in very class-constructed gameplay, when your opponent's playing, your turn cycle has pretty much been planned out, right? You play your, your turn before you've blocked. 
Dashio's not like that. There were times where you plan out a turn cycle to a degree, you flip like a boom grenade, and all of a sudden your turn cycle mm-hmm. is completely different. And I thought that was the most fun thing ever. But Brute's one of the most popular decks in the, in the metagame. And with the rise of Brute comes the rise of easy uh, access to item removal, which is bad for both Classic Dash and Dashio. So for those reasons, I'm out. Yeah. I'm gonna, <laughs> <It's> out. <laughs> I would just I give it a five percent chance. Yeah. I yeah. I assume the at least from my experience, because we definitely tested a lot in the lead up to uh Barcelona, the matchup into Guardian didn't seem great either, especially if they had the correct equipment in order to stop a lot of your on hit triggers. It felt like it felt like with the fridge, uh some of the shields as well, uh it was very hard for you to force through any of those boom grenades without them killing you first. I don't know if you had the same experience. Yeah, so versus Bravo, I kind of... I mean, Bravo was obviously your hardest matchup. Not because of... If they've tried to actually purely fatigue you, I think it's possible to win. Yeah. Because you can set up... Um, what's the card called? The Scrap Hyper Scrapper? Plus the uh, Dominate card. And you can actually set up an endgame with, like, Boom Grenades, Hyper Scrapper, coming in for, like, nine dominate play boom grenade get in your you know actual point back and then pistol them down so the fatigue element wasn't the problem the the problem was when you take those like pseudo off turns because you're setting up like items for boom grenades they hit you with like a cripple or a spinal and then like you could only really effectively block one or two of those turns like those and then the game kind of just spirals but um the deck's like a ton of fun so i don't know i i could be easily convinced to play dashio i just need the right level of copium Mm. <laughs> Speaking of a ton of fun, what are your thoughts on Prism? Prism has drastically rose in popularity since the Road to National season. Uh, maybe not represented in terms of wins, but it's a deck that people are talking about for the Pro Tour, and they're talking about it even in the context of a KO-dominated meta. What's been your experience with, with Prism? Uh, I don't get it. I mean, it's like Bolton. Uh, I think the Prism that won, right, there's no... AO in top eight. Yeah. But I think he did beat a Guardian player. Um, and from what I understand, they kind of pivoted to more of an aura game plan. Um, and that's how it took over. But in my head, I still don't fully understand how that works because as a Bravo, you know, what made or a Guardian, I should say, what made the traditional prison matchup rough was that Luminaris made all those actually Aether Ashwings or one damage recurring threats. And now if the auras aren't threatening, right? I think the only one you really care about is Merciful Retribution, the one that puts yeah. the angels to soul. But like even the Genesis is no longer that threatening. You can pretty much go face. And auras take a long time to recoup the value that they cost to play. I don't I don't really know. Um truthfully I need to put more reps into Prism to maybe I'm missing something. But I know Lucas Oswald played the deck uh at that same tournament where I played Dashio at the Realm Game Invitational. I think he was finding similarly that when your opponents don't have poppers, your matchup's like really good. And when you do, it can be almost nightmarish. So mm. I don't know. I need to put more reps in. Yeah. Uh, my experience was that KO uh, with the Brutes, I mean, the Brutes just beat that deck on every single axis in which it exists. Um, I could be wrong. That's the thing is like you, you come out with this anecdotal evidence of like, oh, I played Brute against it and it feels like it beats it on literally every every single every single way Prism could compete. Brute is just just destroys it and people are like no you're just playing it wrong and i'm like okay maybe maybe um i just i just don't know at this point but i i think the deck is not well positioned uh for the upcoming pro tour like at all <laughs> i also think that if you're if you're existing at a life total that is anywhere near 30 a starting life total anywhere near 30 you need to be doing very very powerful things every single game peak flesh and blood man peak flesh and blood um 
I want to I want to ask about one more because I think it's it's maybe the one that has surprised me for a couple of reasons, both negative and and, and positively. But Kasai, yeah, Kasai, I think had a, like a lot of hype in previous season. Uh, you know, obviously one of the heroes that people are most excited about, given the popularity of young Kasai, um, in in Blitz. And I mean, Kasai, you know, it's like the seventh or eighth most winning hero in Road to National season, but it's not particularly done that well. It's had a couple of top eights at, at these battle hardened events. What, where do you think Kasai sits? Like, do you think it's one of the, it's a sleeper? Like, people just haven't worked it out yet and it has a lot of opportunity? Or is it kind of like the numbers just don't really stack up on Kasai? I think it is a sleeper. I think Kasai is a lot better than the RTN numbers give it credit for. Um, I think Kasai is tough to build because there's multiple avenues to build it. You can build it value-based on gold tokens and getting the incidental, you know, incremental ban advantages off gold, defense reactions, and weapon swings. Um, raise the army base, which could be a little bit trickier to build. You know, are we going all in on a raise the army kind of game plan? Um, so there's multiple avenues, and I think it'll just take some time. I think Kasai has the tools to be a fantastic deck. I think it is a very complicated deck to work out with a lot of avenues, and I think we're going to see Kasai flourish or not exist in the next couple of months. That's TBD, and I don't know which way it's going to go as of yet. Mm. Yeah, it's the only deck I'm currently scared of. Obviously, I don't want to pair into Kano if I'm playing, you know. Maybe I do. I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm way less worried about Kano than I am about something like Kasai. The deck just, the deck is honestly one of the main reasons I'm not super considering Victor anymore. I don't know how representative it will be, but the my matchup as Victor felt pretty bad. Um, I want to ask you, Tark. Do you think? And we've kind of talked about this throughout the entire pod. But if I if I had to, if you had to answer what the best deck in the format is, what answer would you give? That I can't say, but I will tell you the deck because well, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I honestly yeah. don't know, and people love to jump on on anyone if they say, "Oh, X Y Z is the best deck," and it's and it's not. If the Pro Tour was tomorrow, I would probably be registering Ko. I almost said Kano for a second. Kano. <laughs> um, if the Pro Tour was tomorrow, purely from a mathematical point of view, but we still have three weeks until I almost said Baltimore, LA. And uh, I don't know. We need to figure out a lot of stuff. I'm going to be putting in a lot of work with all three of the new heroes, Victor, Kasai, and Ko. And from there, I'm going to look at their impact on the metagame, and we'll figure it out as a group. That's mm -hmm. why I have you guys, right? <laughs> uh, I plan to register Ko. I do. Um, I genuinely do at this point. Um, I think that, like you said, I think the math of the deck is compelling. Um, if there is going to be a deck that will convince me to hop off of Ko, it is. Bravo. It is Bravo. definitely not Bravo. <laughs> definitely not Bravo. But it's going to be Medicaid conditions that somehow skew in a way that uh, that KO deck will not be powerful, which would surprise me, to be honest. Like, uh, it'd be hard for me to see reasonable conditions in which that would occur. Um, I asked you, you know, I asked you, what do you think potentially the best deck is? Or if you were going to read, if you were gonna play tomorrow, what would you play? Well, we have another guy sitting on this panel, and he would play Reinar. What do you think, of, what do you think about the validity of Reinar in this metagame? You're asking me or the, the, you. the coper? You, you, you. Oh, um, I know. I, I joke, but w I do think Reinar is in the best position it's probably ever been in Classic Constructed. Uh, I think Reinar thrives in metagames where decks want to block, and now more than ever, decks are in a kind of blocking, attacking phase. So mm -hmm. uh, if there ever was a time Reinar was actually Tier 1, I think it's now. Um, I do actually like Hayden's deck quite a bit. It's on my two test list. As soon as this podcast is over, I'm actually going to fire up some games and, and give it a go. 
Um, but I, I do think there's something there. So we'll see. Uh, Hayden, uh, your pitch for why to play Reinar um, at the Pro Tour, but also in the context of why would you play it over KO? We've talked about it a few times, but I just want to revisit it. Well, it's a million dollar question, right? Why play it over, over KO? And I think that's the thing that like anyone who's looking at Reinar needs to figure out. Like, what is the reason to play it? I think my current reasoning is basically what 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 Tark just said is that decks want to play two to four card you know a lot of two card hands in, in this in this meta on each of the side of the turn cycle and i think that really favors right now whether you uh intimidate into your end game you're kind of like mini storm striders s kind of end game where you get an extra turn cycle to a degree where your opponent doesn't get interact to interact whether you get to mess up their two card plays to a significant point where they are now dropping their average turn cycle damage yeah. because of it because they can't put the output that they want we talked a lot about the sort of math of of turn cycle output in this pod um but i also just think that currently where reiner is like you just have access to a lot better game plans than you used to like agility really changes up kind of the value you can come in for on any given turn cycle but also even if you're looking at something like uh, a traditional kind of blood rush bellow claws kind of like focused game plan i think now you just can do that a little bit more consistently with with something i know people are pretty high on yellow edge wind up not a card i particularly like but i i think that card does help with that plan so um you know versus a club plan for instance so i i think it's it's in again it's in the best spot it's ever been is it good enough to be better than just playing ko like tara kind of encapsulated perfectly the the homogeneity of kind of these classes and flesh and blood there probably should just be a correct hero to play right and there might be some meta kind of nuance to that maybe intimidate is really good for a particular reason that you are calling in the meta so maybe for one event it is better but it probably ends up being that just one hero should be better and is that ko i mean that's the question right yeah, yeah, and it, I think with the a lot of the chaos that are existing out there, this disruption that you could have on their turn cycle by forcing them to block with a card that they weren't planning to, you know, maybe they're um, so they're able to reach that math that actually brings their deck above sort of the standard turn cycle output of any other deck. I think that is the you know that's that's relevant. It's definitely non-zero. Um, yeah, some of the more popular KO decks do have more of a, a feast and famine in terms of turn cycle output, and I think that the optimal KO deck is actually more of a... It's more somewhere in between, a lot more consistent. I think consistency is king, and that's that's honestly, that's what we're looking at. It's just a more consistent KO deck at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, what what are both of y'all's thoughts about the, the lead-up to this Pro Tour? Because I'll say from a player perspective, it's probably the hardest one to prepare for. It's probably the most confusing. I feel like I've been um, the most disoriented in this testing process over any other Pro Tour. It's just not clear exactly what to play, exactly what the meta will be. I think the other ones have been a lot more predictable. Um, do you think? Do y'all think this is the hardest Pro Tour to prepare for yet? Uh, it's been the least clear as to what the best decks are. Um, and to me, that's actually exciting. I feel like I'm for the first time I'm under a time crunch mm. where I might feasibly run out of time before I really make a determination on what the best deck is. And I think that's a good thing to have, right? Um, that's one of the benefits of working together with a large group. I'm really happy we're all kind of going at this together. We're working with the Canadians and and everybody else. Um, so I think with a good group, we can come to pretty close what's going to be the most optimal deck and what the likely field will be. I think this is fun. I, I think it's it's a lot more fun than it was, you know, grinding 
Starville mirrors for two weeks only to arrive at basically the same deck that we started with. So I'm actually having a blast. I, I really like it. Yeah, this is this has been maybe my most enjoyable preparation in some time. Like part of that is actually the draft format. To be honest, I've been and I, every time I draft, I'm super excited to draft and, and learn something new. And I have not felt that since probably Uprising. And honestly, even an Uprising that capped out pretty quickly comparatively. Um, and then from a constructed standpoint, I think because the and i talked about this at the, the start of the pod before Tarek jumped on but when we did the intro but there's kind of with the, there is there is going to be a best deck right and there is mm-hmm. going to be a a a tier of best decks but i do believe that tier is closer to the second tier than it ever has been before when we get to the pro tour i think it's going to be closer than it has been before i think it's always been objectively correct to pick one of like three decks i think that could expand this time around and i'm excited by that because i think that means that i can explore avenues and options that were never really viable before. For instance, let's look at Reiner, right? Traditionally, I would always pick up Reiner and be like, let's play, you know, a week of this. And then I'm almost immediately after about day four, I put it down and be like, nope, still the same issue, still the same problem. No chance I'm playing that because X, Y, Z, my questions that I'm asking of, of my testing, usually there'll be three decks that I'm saying, these are the questions I'm asking. It's just so far and away, better, more consistent. I can't answer the question. And almost every deck that I've picked up kind of in what I would say is maybe like a tier one to two region, I'm like, no, there is something here. And maybe that's frustrating because it means that more time is going to be spent and I'm not going to get to the answer I want to. Like Tarek said, I could run out of time to find the deck that I think is the best deck in the format. But I still think it's exciting. I still think it's fun. And I'm, I'm enjoying that process a lot. So um, yeah, I, I, I like this process. Uh, I mentioned to put a pin in this earlier. And I want to ask you, um, because for me, coming back as a player, uh, it's been pretty eye-opening. Uh, some of the tools, resources, and just the advantage that larger testing groups have at this point. Um, how big do you think that gap is? How how much of an advantage do you think they have, especially considering the online analogs in which you're able to play the game with Talishar, the data you can get from Talishar, but also drafting online, aggregating the draft, aggregating the data from those online drafts and analyzing it. Like, what do you think that advantage looks like at this point compared to you know the solos or the duos that are trying to attend these tournaments? Uh, I think from a data perspective, if you have a good head about you and you're pretty analytical, it's pretty equal i think my advantage is having other good minds to look at the same data and bounce ideas or opinions off of because a lot of the time the access to the data isn't a problem right anybody can grind knowledge our games or do online drafts i think the edge for me at least it comes from getting on an idea quickly because of somebody else but also eliminating my biases when i have them because they're being pointed out by somebody who's also really good or analytical right? Like, I don't think if Aiden was with me, I would ever consider Reinar. And that would be a deficit uh, in my testing. But because he's there to say, look at the same thing that you're seeing, I agree with, but looking at this slightly different, I'm now going, okay, this might be a real thing. So I think personally, the advantage for large testing groups comes from being in a large group of informed and good players, rather than from the quantity of the game, specifically quality over quantity, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah, and... I, I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I think I think if you're a, a solo player, you have just as much access to the, the the tool, in particular you're talking about for drafting, right? So, um, and like from a personal standpoint, I, I I personally don't use that tool because I don't find it enjoyable. I don't find it as as impactful to me as how I can spend my time elsewhere um, with cards in my hand. So, I, I honestly think actually. Yeah, there's some data aspect to it in the way that you share data and have the conversations Tarek said. I think those are the most important things. But I think 
smaller groups, individuals can do like 80% of that, like fairly easily, honestly. Yeah. There's one last thing I want to talk about, which is sort of a paradigm shift for me in terms of uh, attending these pro tours and how to prepare for them and what I'm preparing for. I think in the past, um, you know, we fell into a camp of trying to play a deck that beat the best players in the room and try to get as much of an edge as possible against what we perceive to be the strongest teams, the best players, a subset, like a, a, main, a main minority of people, minority group of people that were attending the pro tour. And I do think that that has changed for me now where I think the correct approach is to try to get the largest edge over the average player at the tournament. This is something I heard in regards to Magic the Gathering and people are preparing for the most recent Pro Tour was this approach uh, to testing and picking a deck. Because I think that the previous ideology I had would put me on to those sort of deck that beats the deck or deck that beats the deck that beats the deck kind of decks. And it would often neglect and not take seriously enough the concept of just playing the best deck in the room. Um, what do you what do you think about that? And what is your approach? Um, I personally couldn't care less what anybody else is going to play. There's good players from around the world. They all arrive at different conclusions. I think if you focus on the process and just maximizing what you know to be objectively correct, everything else will kind of work itself out. Um, and that's not to throw shade at anybody. And that's why I think it's really funny when people will accuse content creators of manipulating the metagame, especially informed ones, because it's like, that's not the goal, right? If I make you play a slightly subpar deck, it, it's not going to help when I may not even play against you, the person. I, I don't know. Like, if my deck is subpar, it's irrelevant what the rest of the room is doing. So, firstly, I want to maximize my own potential and then. I'll start worrying about what everybody else does, but I don't even know if I can get the first stage done by the time Pro Tour rolls around. So, yeah. Um, my last question for you, Hayden, is how are you feeling? In you know, we, you kind of already talked about with Tarek said, you know, usually he tries to lock before, and this time might be a little time crunched. Uh, you historically have had troubles time crunching before the end at some of the F1? Pro Tours and World Champions. I mean, I was a part of that too. I'm not saying I wasn't. How are you feeling about this one? So. I did a lot of reflecting after Worlds, I think, and my preparation for Worlds was the least preparation I've ever done. It was it was just super disrupted by my work schedule, and um, and I kind of knew that going in, and I didn't adapt for it, which hurt me a lot. But I think the times that I've had personal like success where I've felt that I've done well in events, so uh, you know, Worlds, I think 2022, my Nationals win, my Nationals top four uh, last year, the calling top eight last year as well. I locked fairly early and just really spent time dedicating to to game plans and um, finding finding a deck that I thought was in the top tier that was powerful that had a really good angle on the meta game and then just learning it and tweaking like sort of tuning it as much as possible and I think by the end of this week that's where I'm going to be I think I'm gonna, I think I've learned my lesson on on picking late I don't adapt well late I'm someone who uh, does better with more information I think in in my hands uh, I'm not necessarily as just naturally talented at playing the game as as other players i need that kind of time and reps especially when it comes to class constructed so i think that's where i'm going to be 100 percent. i uh i've reflected and realized that i'm a player that makes mistakes and there's nothing more detrimental to my performance at a major tournament than being under repped on a deck and not having enough experience um some people have that natural talent where they can exist in a lot of theory and they will just this guy <laughs> this guy and they will be able to play correctly play soundly but 
um, I've realized I'm not that person. And what is more important to me than having the, you know, 1% edge of everyone or the 1% better deck than everybody in the room is to be more practiced than everybody in the room, or at least be as, as much as practiced as them. Yeah. Tark Patel, the, uh, the talented, the actual talented card player. <laughs> uh, um, Hayden, do you have any other questions for Tark before we head out? Nah. Yeah. All right. Well, Tark, <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity to shout out what you're up to, where people can find you, all that good stuff. And not much to shout out. I'm kind of laying low right now. Uh, I actually recently closed on a house, so very busy with that and working. Thanks. So life's very, very busy for me. So content creation wise, I've kind of taken a step back for now. We'll see when my life kind of settles down. But if you want to hear my thoughts, I'm always on Twitter at TarkFatel10. You can find me there. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Uh, it's always it's always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, your you know your thoughts and opinions are insightful. So, if you enjoyed this podcast and you wanna you wanna help us out, the number one thing you can do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We read every single review, and it is the absolute number one thing you can do. Twitter's at Brandon APG, Fian underscore Dale, and Tark Patel ten. Um, check us out there. And finally, big thank you to the Arsenal Pass patrons. You help us do what we do. We appreciate you endlessly. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week.